Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. We're actually coming up here in D.C. We're coming up on our 30th anniversary, depending on where you start the campus. It's hard to say. Interestingly, we we began as a... Um, as a joint venture, actually, between Trinity Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the C.S. Lewis Institute, and RTS, I gathered this from the uh, from the oral histories that I uh, put together when I first moved up here back in 2012. And it's a little known fact that we actually started around the mid 90s um, as a program. So it was around 1995-96. So we're coming up on that 30 year anniversary pretty soon. And we'll need to commemorate that. But I think about this every time I say part of a 50 plus year endeavor, because that's that's RTS in general, that RTS DC has been around for a good bit of that 50 years. So um, we're coming up on our anniversary, too. And it's been amazing to watch how the campus has grown from zero faculty members to now basically four faculty members and uh, three pretty much full-time faculty members. If you think of it, Paul Jean and Jennifer Patterson and Erwin Ince, um, we, uh, we've really grown as a campus. And our latest hire of faculty is Dr. Grace Hutanto. And when we were looking for someone to replace um, or to take the position of Dr. Howard Griffith, who some of our listeners may know if they took classes back then, we wanted someone who had a similar love for systematic theology and particularly Herman Bovink. If you knew Howard Griffith, you knew he loved Herman Bovink. And we thought it would be really nice if on top of it, this guy had some philosophy chops. Because at RTS, as you can imagine, particularly in a place like Washington, D.C., where there's a, there's a lot of thought going on here, there's a lot of conversation and high-level intellectual conversation in Washington, we wanted someone who was trained and um, could operate at a philosophical level and gray, yeah, you're, you're that person. Okay. I'm sitting here with Grace Sutanto, our philosopher, our professor of systematic theology. And, uh, it's just the two of us. It's a little bit of a scaled down summer morning, but we want to talk today about philosophy specifically because this is a seminary after all, how do you read the Bible philosophically? There's been a, a movement of the last 10 years of engaging with the philosophy of the Bible, and it's brought in people trained and in philosophy to apply their craft to the reading interpretation of God's word. So, Greg, can you start us off? Give us a little bit of a description. What what is this movement? Where does it come from, and um, how does it benefit us? Right. Wonderful. Thanks so much for that kind introduction and prompt, Doctor Red. Um, well. The idea that the Bible itself contains philosophy is a little bit of a controversial move, right? Well, maybe first of all, we should we should probably give a, a simple definition of philosophy first. Um, philosophy, I like to think of it in terms of just a layman's uh, uh, definition. It, it, it's the it's the attempted answers at the biggest questions of life, right? The questions of the meaning of being itself, of existence. That's the issue of metaphysics. The question of knowing. That's the issue of epistemology, the theory of knowledge, and then the issue of the good life or ethics, right? So what are some of the attempted answers in the history of philosophy to these 
sub-disciplines of metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. That's really what, what philosophy is about. But the Bible, as it turns out, offers pretty distinct answers to these questions, right? The Bible gives us a particular kind of metaphysics. It tells us that human beings are made in the image of God, that we are body-soul composites, that we are made to reflect the triune God, and that there's a creator-creature distinction, therefore, between God and himself, on the one hand, who is immutable, who is unchangeable, who is who is simple and absolute. And then there's also mutable creatures like us. And we are not God, and we are dependent on him. We are contingent, finite beings. And we are also made to know in his image. And so it, the Bible gives us a particular kind of epistemology. The Bible shows us that in, in terms of natural matters, we know by way of general revelation. And we know God immediately because he has revealed himself to us in our souls and, and throughout human history. And the Bible has given us uh, um, this, this idea of special revelation, which is broader than the scriptures. God spoke to Adam in the garden. God continues to speak to man through the prophets and the apostles. And finally, he's codified that, that revelation in scripture itself. Um, so the Bible tells us that God has always wanted us to live by his word. That his word norms our interpretation of reality. That his word gives us the map by which we should interpret his world. And so the Bible gives us a particular kind of an epistemology. And then finally, of course, the Bible tells us, again, what we ought to do in light of God's revelation. Um, this is in his will and his moral law. God has disclosed himself in the natural law in general revelation. But he has recodified what that natural law means in the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments is really um, repeating what we should have known by nature alone. But because of sin, we suppress the truth. And so... Um, what is clearly revealed in nature is no longer clearly expressed by us. So again, God discloses this will for us in the Ten Commandments and ultimately the ways in which we are to imitate Christ Jesus, our Lord and our elder brother, and of course our example, therefore. So the Bible has all kinds of answers to the deepest questions of life of metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. And I think in, in, in giving us this, the Bible gives us the, the basic structure and backdrop by which we should engage other philosophies on offer. And I think throughout church history, we see our best theologians and philosophers basically take this basic rubric, this ba the basic raw material for a philosophy in scripture and, and, and prompted these philosophers and theologians to think, how do I then engage philosophies who are not taking the Bible as an authority and yet still use those philosophies in a way that elaborates my own theology and the kind of data that's been revealed in scripture so that um, the Bible, again, prompts us toward this horizontalization, this use of these non-Christian philosophies for the service of Christian theology. This is the mm -hmm. tradition of faith-seeking understanding. And so in the class that I teach here at RTS in Christian thought and philosophy, I try to propose a Augustinian approach to the Christian uh, way of, of using philosophy, right? So there's many approaches on offer, and there are some obviously bad approaches under the name of Christian theology, a kind of biblicism that says, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? Let's just use the Bible, use the terminology that's only found in the Bible and never engage with non-Christian philosophies. But then there's a kind of syncretistic approach that says that Christian theology is not sufficient. We need to combine it with some kind of non-Christian philosophy to form a more coherent perspective. But in the Augustinian approach, you, you get neither of those, neither a kind of biblicism, pure antithesis, nor this combination between Christianity and another philosophical perspective into a kind of syncretistic approach. So in an Augustinian perspective, 
He's got this conviction. This is expounded in on Christian teaching, especially, and then elaborated on the city of God, which says that anything that the non-Christian finds is because God has first disclosed it to them. So in on Christian teaching, he says that when the non-Christian philosopher, especially he has in view here, Plato, which he thinks is the best of all philosophers, articulates some truth. It's not because Plato was just a genius on his own by nature alone, or because Plato just discovered this. And so we're all crediting all the things that we know from Plato when we learn from him, but rather Plato was himself living on God's providence. And so Plato was mining from God's providence, but using it for his own ends. And now as Christians, we ought to plunder the plainness, plunder the Egyptians, use the tools that they have found for the service of Christian theology. So Augustine and on Christian teaching, this is a really interesting passage. Scott, I don't know if you knew about this passage, but a lot of the plainness and neo-plainness in Augustine's day said that Jesus was only wise because it must have been the case that Jesus was reading Plato, which came a few centuries before Jesus. So, so why was Jesus wise for the plainness? Because he was reading our master, Plato mm -hmm. himself. And Augustine says, well, didn't Ambrose show us that Plato was actually reading Jeremiah? <laughs> Um, so it's not that we learn from the plainness, but the plainness originally learned from us. But then, of course, Augustine grew and in the city of God, he revised that. And this is one of the best things about Augustine. He was humble enough to revise his earlier writings. He says, OK, OK, maybe Plato never read Jeremiah. Right. But maybe Plato read Moses, which is before Jeremiah, because um, whatever. He's got to find direct connections. He's got to find direct connection. Uh, he was he was adamant about saying that. It wasn't that we learn from Plato, but Plato learned from us. And not just that Plato learned from God's revelation in nature, but actually Plato learned from our special revelation to use reformed categories, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that sense of when we're learning from the non-Christian philosophers, it's not that we're giving them credit, but it's because they originally learned from us. And what I try to show in the class is that this is uh, approximating the, a Kuyperian neo-Calvinistic approach that we get from Abraham Kuyper and Hermann Bavink and, and then later figures like Hermann Dojeveert and Cornelius Van Til, which says that the non-Christian philosopher, therefore, is living on borrowed capital, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think- e this, Even if you can't show that there's a direct connection, right? right. Yeah. Even if you can't show that they read the Bible and got their ideas. Yeah, even if you can't show a historical connection, yeah. um, conceptually speaking, it's because they have been learning from God's general revelation and common grace. And so we can learn from them. And so when they use- particular philosophical tools like Plato would use the language of substance. Aristotle would use the language of substance. We can use those concepts, retool them for the service of Christian theology without imbibing the entire worldview of Platonism or Aristotelianism. Or uh, to use another, a more modern example, we can use the word worldview from Kant mm -hmm. without subscribing to Kantianism, right? So in the class, I, I try to make a distinction that I'm drawing straight from Abraham Kuyper uh, between a philosophical tool and a philosophical system. Mm -hmm. A philosophical tool is just the word or the concept like substance talk or accident, substance, accidents, essence, existence from, from um, Avicenna or even worldview from Kant, right? Well, we can use those concepts from these philosophical milieus without imbibing the systems in which they are a part of, originally speaking, right? And, and that's, are, that's so important 
specifically because you still hear today in a lot of different conversations that kind of uh, committing of the genetic fallacy that because Mm -hmm. something because it came from Kant that what are you some kind of Kantian right you know and to be honest this goes in all different directions I think Christians sometimes use this too you show that something came out of an unbelieving philosophy like Marx or others and you think well now we've won the fight no you can you can borrow the tool as a matter of fact Paul borrowed tools without borrowing systems right exactly yep John did it with Logos. Uh, Paul did it in Acts 17, which quote he was quoting a Stoic uh, philosopher, a poem to Zeus from Cleanthes. In him, we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. That's right. And the Stoics were thinking, ha, you're affirming us. But then suddenly he says, but this is not a God that lives in temple who is served by human hands, nor is he uh, a part of us, but rather he is in the heavens and he's going right. to judge us, right? So, right. Um, and he's resurrected as Jesus Christ. So he's, he's citing this poem and he's saying, this poem only makes sense if it's in reference to our God and in reference to your God. So this this is, you know, this Augustinian approach is really just following the method, you know, of, of John and Paul and, of course, the prophets as well, who would say that the idols that you follow, they're really nothing. And we can use your materials to build our own temple, right? Mm-hmm. And so we can plunder the Egyptians. That's where the term comes from. But... um. Yeah, so this is a really, really key thing. So that so that Augustine famously said, you know, anytime you find truth, this is the truth of God, right? And then we have the dictum, all truth is God's truth. And so one of the things I say is that when we say all truth is God's truth, it's just not just affirmation of the non-Christian who believes in the truth, but rather this is also calling them to a kind of accountability before God. How did right. you know this truth in the first place? Because God has given it to you. And so you're culpable for knowing this truth because you're not giving God the glory. Instead, you've substituted him and given credit to your own philosophies or your own sort of reasoning, right? Mm. Um, so this is what I try to say in the class, that that ultimately this sort of language is I- inevitable because the Bible itself borrows from other philosophies and co-ops it for the service of God. And so a kind of biblicism is unsustainable because, uh, again, if you're if you're actually following the Bible, then you wouldn't be biblicistic because the Bible itself borrows from non-Christian philosophy to articulate itself. So God shows that non-Christian philosophers are constantly borrowing from his truth. And also, you shouldn't be syncretistic because you're not just affirming them when you're using non-Christian philosophy. You're also challenging them at the same time. And that's the beautiful Augustinian dynamic that I wanted to develop. There's, It's interesting that that illuminates... Um... I shouldn't use that word because I'm going to use it again to mean something else in a second. That fills out our doctrines, both of organic inspiration and perspicuity of scripture, right? Because because God's word is revealed in a way that is intelligible. How does that happen? It's because it's through an actual human being. It's organically revealed. It's in his lifetime. You know, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that the Proverbs of Solomon include Proverbs that were already present outside of Solomon's teaching, like Egyptian sayings and that sort of thing. We shouldn't be surprised by that because this is organic. Uh, the, he's, 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 he's employing um, words around him and whatnot, but articulating them in a way that is inspired. So that's organic inspiration. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, it's how scripture is perspicuous. It's not coming out of left field. It's not an unintelligible to us, but it's actually spoken in a way the human audiences will understand and can make sense of. And that includes the fact that it's being spoken in a way that um, could coincide with uh, the findings of other philosophical outlooks. Yeah. And and when it coincides with them, scripture never just plainly affirms them. Scripture always redefines yep. Yep. them significantly. So John's yep. use of Logos 
would have been very alien to the Stoic philosophies that use the same kind of language. And Paul's use of that poem would have been very alien to the Stoics who were listening to him uh, in Acts 17. So when scripture and when Christian theologians... I think, I think John's using more of a Psalm 119 logos, but don't worry about it. Let's keep okay, going. Let's okay, keep okay, going. Keep going. That's fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. All right, Old Testament scholar. Um, but but the point is, right, when, philosoph when Christian philosophers, therefore are using the language of the non-Christian philosophies, they're not merely baptizing the term. They are actually significantly redefining it. So they were not naive, therefore. So when you when you see um, the early Christian apologists and, and Augustine used the language of, of Aristotelian substance and later when Aquinas uses it, and then you see how Aristotle himself uses the term, it's incredibly really different. And so you're not just going to say, like, like Scott pointed out, you're not just going to say because Aristotle used it, so therefore we cannot use it. And at the same time, when when Kuiper uses the term worldview, it's very different than the way Kant would use the term worldview. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't just a univocal use of it. And, and, and so when these terms are put into service for the Christian God, you got to redefine them. Mm -hmm. um, again, this is not, they define the terms and we just happen to agree with it and we're not supplementing it with, hey, you got substance right, let me just add Trinitarian language, right? Mm -hmm. No, they redefined the word system so that it would be subordinated under the Trinitarian aims of Christian theology. Um, so that's really important. And I think it gives Christians the kind of confidence to read non-Christian philosophies, mm -hmm. to say, I can expect to learn from them because they're grappling with the truth. Because this is an era of God's common grace, um, they're not just going to fully suppress the truth. They see the glimmer of it and they want to articulate it, even while they don't want to acknowledge the real God that's given it to them. So that's that's the agenda for the class, Christian thought and philosophy. And, and um, it is, I think, a very fruitful class because as we go through the history of Western philosophy, we're not only seeing where we get our theological language, which is from these philosophies, but at the same time, we can see the development of theology that is very much in congruence with the development of philosophy. So one of the examples I say in class too, which is why this class is so important, is, you know, why does Anselm wrote the way that he did? Why did he write the way that he did on the one hand? And then Bavinck wrote the way that he did. So how did Anselm write, right? Hardly any footnotes in the modern sense. It's a prayer, and yet it's still treated as an academic treatise, a scientific treatise, so to speak, right? On whether or not God exists and whether or not his greatness is something that is uh, proven just on the basis of, of ontological claims that we make about God's existence. Um, and then suddenly you get Hermann Bavinck and then you get tons of footnotes. And then there's our, sort of this historical genealogical approach from, uh, you know, take a particular doctrine that Bavinck treats and it's suddenly scripture first, then it's the early church fathers, then the medieval theologians and the reformation, then the moderns and then contemporary statements, right? Why does Bavinck need to show a genealogical sort of trajectory of a particular doctrine before he gets to the contemporary statement. Well, it's because of the Kantian turn. It's because of the historical turn, because of the conditions of, of what Kant did in epistemology. We don't just feel like we have the right to have direct access to speaking about truth claims without a historical sort of trajectory of that particular uh, idea. So, you know, I say to students, if, you know, you were to turn in a paper or if you read a fellow student turn in a paper, and he couched it in terms of a poem, and he turned it into Dr. Scott Red's Isaiah class get and an prophet's a, class. You get an A right away. You get an A right away, right? <laughs> and you know he's writing on the book of Isaiah, and then he says meditation in the book of Isaiah, mm -hmm. right? Here's my three thousand word research paper. Yeah, right. Um, you can't do that anymore. You feel yeah. you know most of the students in class actually laugh at that idea. Yeah. And why is that? And I would say, well, it's because you are all children of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Right. And, and 
But so that the alignment is actually, it, it is in some ways very corrosive to Christian theology. But yeah. at the same time, it's also telling us that we're limited creatures. We can't just make grandiose claims on the basis of our own say so. Mm-hmm. But rather, we need to prove our claims by way of historical research. Yeah, yeah, and so there's there's pros and cons in every philosophical milieu. And That's, that is so hard to get across today because people are still, even in this postmodern world of relativism, people are still convinced that no, where we're heading is all inevitable progress. People right. still have this kind of sense it's all getting better in every way. There's no other way it could have gone that wouldn't be getting better. You right. know, and you're right. There are some things that are better about it. Right. And something I mean, in my class, that's why I was joking that he'd get an A. My class, I, ha- I have a little rant that I go on about poetry that for most of human history, if you wanted to say something really important, no one would deign to profane it by putting it in prose. You put right. it in poetry. That's how you say important things. And even the early you know, commentaries of, uh, of non-Western and even you even mentioned Ambrose, you know, but of, of non of many of the non-Western writers, you know, Mar Ephraim and Jacob of Sarug and others, they're all writing their commentaries in poetry. Mm-hmm. And yet, yeah, it's because of that enlightenment move mm-hmm. that things are different. And I, I try to get them to imagine, you know, imagine if it had gone another way. It's, it's not that it would be bad. It would yep. maybe be deficient in some ways, mm-hmm. but not in others. Kind of going to like, you know, Thomas Kuhn's argument that as we see this endless progress of science you know, one of his findings is that i'm not sure we're really going towards anything specifically like we think we are you yeah. know we're just sort of moving into more and more detailed analysis in one way as opposed to another right yep so you know it, it cuts in both directions there's those who say well we all know that the enlightenment is all bad and everything that kant brought about is just you know he's opening the door for all the boogeymen to come around right and and when I hear that, and I would say, but yet you still write research papers, yeah, right? Exactly, with yeah. tons of footnotes because that's what rigor is, right? Where did you right. get that from? Well, the modern research university. Where did you get that idea from? Well, from Friedrich Schleiermacher and what he did in the university. Yeah, this of is the, this is the water we're swimming in, like it or not. Exactly yeah. right. So so even if you're saying that I want to go back to pre-Kantian conditions, you're writing books against Kant on the basis yep. of the Kantian milieu, right? right. Yet on the other hand, there's also those who say, well, the Enlightenment's just all good, but but no, it's not because we all know from the scriptures that we have access to reality by way of God's revelation. So it's not just also subjective as sort of move. So, so, you know, the enlightenment has reminded us, you know, if you, if you want to take a Christian reading of it, of the inevitable subjectivity of our interpretation of the world because of sin. Um, so there is epistemic humility here that we need to write our papers in such a way where we're conscious that we're dependent on research that has come before us. But yet at the same time, it could cut against the, the biblical text when it says, well, then it's all just subjective human claims. Yeah. Uh, but now we recognize that the Bible tells us we're both sinful and finite, yet on the other hand, we have revelation from God, right? So what the Bible does, it's, it's, it offers a third way. It's not just a combination of enlightenment and pre-enlightenment thought, but it really is something different altogether that cuts across both directions. Mm-hmm. That's great. Is this, uh, does Bobbing deal with this in the book that you all are currently working on and, and have coming out Christian, not Christian science as we know, but Christian scholarship? Christian scholarship. Yes, he does. He does deal with this. He has already done done a, a lot of the spade work in Christian worldview. So I have my, my students read Christian worldview. 
And at first, they're, they're probably thinking to themselves, why is Bobbing talking about the subject-object distinction? Why is Bobbing talking about universals and divine ideas in light of Plato's forms, right? And they didn't know what these terms mean, but in light of taking the class, hopefully they would. Mm -hmm. But Bobbing is trying to then apply it to a more specific context. If you're a scholar, a Christian scholar in the oh, university, yeah, yeah. how do you apply this now to the discipline of natural science, to humanities, and so on? And that's coming out literally next year. Next year, yeah. next spring, is it? Uh, do we know? May, we it was supposed to be spring, but we've been delaying and delaying the editing. But um, okay. it's, it's been done. The translation is done. All that's needed now is the editing. That's great. But uh, class intensives and the baby and so on. So we're all kind of slow. The baby. The baby. We, we have yet to talk about the baby on the podcast. We should that's at right. some point. Um, the beautiful, the beautiful little baby girl. Yeah. Uh, who's five months as of five months as of this quarter? So you guys are in the middle of it. You're learning some yeah. epistemological humility as we speak. I am. And even as I'm speaking right now, I feel my finitude because <laughs> I am uh, a little bit sleepless. And, you know, that's just what it is. Keep It's all good. Keep going. Embrace your finitude yeah. and still just try to be faithful. Right. Do, that's like, all it is. As I keep telling all of our faculty, it's a marathon, not a sprint. It's okay. Just, just survive. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, there's that viral tweet from this uh, lady who just submitted her PhD dissertation of philosophy and she compared it to what a 17th century philosopher would say. 17th century philosopher. Here is my thesis. It is identical with the laws of nature. And here's now in 2020, here's my PhD thesis on the basis of three years of very careful research and it's making a very modest, limited claim and I hope it's okay. Yeah. Right? It's, it's so different. <laughs> I hope it's okay and I'm not embarrassed. Yeah, I hope it's okay. I've got imposter syndrome forever. <laughs> but then here's some dude like alone in a room in a candlelit sort of bath or something and, she, mm -hmm. and he's like, here, I will now pronounce the laws of nature. That's right. Everything I say is necessary truth, you know, whether in Spinoza or Descartes, the indubitable foundation, right? So it's... The, Times have changed, let's say, and yeah, some for know, good. I wonder, you know, you hear about, um, full, you know, how does personality guide thought? Mm -hmm. And in that case, you're adding also, how does personality and context? Maybe that's the reason why you could be so bold is because you were alone in a room with a candle and there's yep. nobody there. There's nobody there to call you out for it. Yep. And you had very little access to other views in the world, uh, whereas now we're in a globalized, immediate sort of content uh, sort of generation. We're very conscious that our view is just one view among many. Secularism is that sense that um, whatever my perspective is, it's one limited perspective. And there could be other equally justifiable perspectives out there, right? One of the values of pluralism, I suppose, right, is learning right. actually a humil an epistemological humility. Right. And so what I would say in another class in apologetics is how can Christians be more humble than than lots of the other philosophies of the world is because christianity says that we can accommodate pluralism mm -hmm. christianity says that because of common grace you can be patient with other people's uh, uh we can have patience with other people's worldviews whereas if you're a secularist then all the religions are just really illusions and myths and so yeah. you can't take them seriously yeah. and if you are let's say a, a theocrat of a muslim sort of variety right, or islamic variety then you would have to say that uh non-theism is itself not acceptable right whereas christianity says in a pluralistic framework, right? Um, that actually fits with our reading of redemptive history now. So we can deal with deep diversity. So if you want deep diversity, you can't have it on a secularist ground. You can have it on a Christian ground. So uh, that's a very Kuyperian way of thinking about it. Yeah. That's great. Thanks, Gray, for introducing us to 
not just philosophy. That's actually a great, the great definition of philosophy is very helpful. I think people talk about philosophy and they're not sure exactly you know, how that's not theology, particularly mm-hmm. as a Christian. Isn't it just how the way we think or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, but also how to think philosophically about the scriptures and the implications of that. That's, that's profound. And for some people too, it may be a, a new avenue of thinking about the scripture that they hadn't delved into, or if they had been doing it, they've been doing it unconsciously. So thanks for walking us through that. Uh, Everybody, if you've got questions for us or comments, please post them. We've got a link in the show notes. Um, We love to answer questions that you're posting to us. Here's the reason why I keep saying this too, is that when I'm walking around and I'm at the seminary or at church or I was at another church's retreat this weekend, people come up to me and tell me that they've been listening to the podcast and then they ask me a question. I say, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we have an app for that. Um, you uh, You can post that question and we will answer it on the air in a future episode. So we'd love to do that. If you'd like to hear more about RTS Washington, go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. We'd love to start that conversation with you if you'd be interested in taking classes. And if you'd like to know more about RTS, just go to rts.edu. You'll find that we have a whole bunch of online offerings and campuses around the world. And as we know from our listenership, that you all are not just in the Washington, D.C. area, but you're all around the world. So um, we'd love to serve you if you'd like to have that, uh, if you'd like to start taking classes at RTS or learn more about it. So we'll continue this conversation in the weeks ahead. Uh, We look forward to being with you during that time. Until then, take care.